0: do in those situations you know those extreme situations of life and death or for the greater good when you're called upon to step outside of your comfort zone you that's the true test of character i believe so the decision that you make in those moments i think define who you are as a person and to me it was a no-brainer you know the lives of these two guys were at stake so i had to step up
1: You're going to have to hear this coffee pod to believe it. We're joined by a remarkable woman, Rabia Sadiq. Rabia is a criminal and human rights lawyer, retired British Army officer, a former terrorism and war crimes prosecutor, and now a professional speaker, facilitator, and published author. She's been awarded a Queen's Commendation for her human rights work in Iraq and has received numerous public accolades, including being named one of Australia's 100 Most Influential Women, and also being a finalist for the 2016 Australian of the Year Awards. This is a story of courage, of resilience, and one that's going to get the goosebumps on the back of your neck going. Here's Rabia. One of the things I've admired since we first met is the poison and the passion that you carry yourself with, and that has absolutely infused everything that you do.
0: Thank you. That was that's very kind words and... Uh That's why it's such a pleasure to speak to you because I think we're very like-minded people and your accomplishments are only superseded by, I think, your authenticity as well. So thank you very much for that. That's why it's a real pleasure to talk to you about all of these things today. I think for me, that passion for justice manifested itself in the early years when I was a child, being a child of an immigrant coming here to this country in the 70s. Seeing in those formative years how, particularly, my father had to overcome a lot of, you know, prejudice and and ignorance. And that I think gave me some very early awareness of social justice. And then, and then suffering my own um, traumas and child sexual abuse and and feeling very much at a critical time in my life as I was entering into sort of that that pubescent stage of feeling very powerless and feeling trapped by my circumstances and, and feeling that I didn't have a voice either. And I guess for me, I was very, very lucky to find myself eventually in an environment, in a school that was supportive and nurturing and and that helped me to learn to accept myself and to celebrate my differences. And it was really being in that environment that I was able to, and, and I guess inspired to make decisions about what I wanted to do with my life and the sort of person I wanted to be and how I wanted to live my life. So I guess that's then when the decision came that whatever it was that I was going to do, I wanted to make sure it was helping other people access justice and helping other people to find their voice in a way that I felt for so long I wasn't able to. So I think when you go through experiences like that and you're able to come to realizations about what you're essence is and what your purpose in life is, it just makes it so much easier to align the way you live and the environment you put yourself in. Um, it just becomes, I, I guess, a lot, it, it becomes empowering and it, it brings out that heart, in what you do. So it's wonderful to hear that, that, that that's something that's resonated with you and, and with others as well. Absolutely. And I find it
1: so remarkable that it, at such a young age, you had that level of resolve to let such a traumatic and, and difficult situation and a challenging set of circumstances that in many ways could have caused you to just shut down, to actually yeah. inspire this want to uh, pursue a, a life of helping others. You know, was Was that really down to your yeah. environment and those role models?
0: I think it had a lot to do with it. Absolutely. I think it would have been very, very easy. And I think that I was approaching that fork in the road where I could have very easily fallen victim to my circumstances and that could have damaged me and probably destroyed me. I think but for that break in that circuit um, and finding myself in that environment in in my high school where I was really mentored and nurtured And all of the qualities that I had initially resented in myself because I was a kid, particularly in the 70s and 80s, coming from elsewhere, all you want to do is is to fit in and become invisible. And I think challenging that mindset and then having that, being encouraged and being equipped to have that really important mental shift in how you perceive yourself and then how you perceive your place in the world was, was crucial. I think it's what absolutely saved me. So, imagining
1: it's probably what underpinned that the want to study law and in, in the pursuit of justice. But how did you go from being a, a UWA law student to being a commissioned legal officer in the British Army? <laughs>
0: how did that journey yeah, take? Yeah, so on? that was that was that was very unplanned. Um, I I guess the law was the decision that came later. You know, what how how do I help people? How can I serve on this planet to make other people's lives better? And funnily enough, initially the plan was medicine because I thought what greater gift than to be able to help improve the quality of people's lives and to save lives. And then it became clear to me in my final years at university that I was going to be one of the worst physics students that Australia had seen. So <laughs> medicine was 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 clearly off the table. So I had to, you know, then think long and hard about where my strengths were and, and then came the decision and for law. So, so I guess then, you know, after qualifying, I was really fortunate to work in my in my early years as a young lawyer in some areas that opened my mind and challenged my perspective. So I worked um, with our Indigenous remote populations. I worked with victims of domestic and family violence, and I worked with refugees and asylum seekers, amongst other things, and also did a, did a fair bit of work in, in the criminal law sphere. But after a few years of practicing, it became clear to me what I really wanted to do and why I had chosen the law, and that was to work with victims of war crimes in an area called international humanitarian law. So what I then realised that I wanted to do was that I wanted to help those that were suffering the most abhorrent abuses, people that found themselves so vulnerable and so disenfranchised, but also that lived in parts of the world where I guess they just didn't have a voice, where justice didn't exist. Mm. So the question was, how do I do that? And back in those days, Australia... Was very limited in, in, in its opportunities for that kind of work. So, the decision came to leave Australia in the 90s, and I headed for the UK, you know, a very similar legal system, the same language, and I thought that perhaps I could find some opportunities to do that kind of work there. And then, um, within my first couple of years of, of living and, and doing some postgraduate studies in, in London, I came across an opportunity to take part as a volunteer in a community aid expedition to South America. And that was just supposed to be a wonderful adventure and a wonderful, um, you know, uh, experience that would Hmm. personally develop me. But what I didn't realise is that it would have such an impact on decisions that I would make later. And what happened during this six months um, in South America was I met a group of people that I'd never been exposed to, which were the military The British Army had been asked to come along and to help support us with security and with logistics. (coughs) Excuse me. And some of the strongest friendships that I made during that time were some of the Army officers that had come along to help us. And I think the quality in them that resonated with me was their passion and their commitment to a career of service. And it was one of these officers that became one of my best mates, a guy called Nathan who sadly died eight years ago. But Nathan was the one that sowed the seed and and really opened my eyes to the possibilities of doing the work that I wanted to do whilst also having a, a meaningful and a quite exciting life as, as a legal officer in, in the army at a time in my 20s when I was desperate to do work that I wanted to, but I was also a bit of an adrenaline junkie. So that kind of spoke to a lot of who I was at the time. So he sowed the seed that later... Ended up sprouting. So after this expedition, about it's eighteen months after that, I decided to apply to commission into the army. So that really wasn't part of the initial plan. <laughs> Bit um, of a twist, but but exactly. that's life, isn't it? When when does life go according to plan? And I think that's part of the beauty that I've learned of life. That um, sometimes some of the some of the best experiences come from when we just surrender to the opportunities that present themselves and and just have faith to go with them.
1: So how was it, you know, signing up at, as a woman in your 20-somethings to join the, the British Army? What, what was yeah. the experience like, the, the training like that you
0: had to do before before deployment? <sighs> yeah, so the training was probably some of the most psychological and physical, physically demanding, challenging stuff that I've ever done. Um, so in terms of, so I was in my late 20s. I was one of the oldest um professional officers to go through my military course uh, and I had to spend months and months getting myself in peak physical condition and and I think also the mindset, you know, Mm. the, the grit and the determination to keep going in what is a very foreign environment where you're being screamed at, where you're having to conform in this highly disciplined environment. So, I had visions of you
1: running in the rain. You know, trekking oh, through the night
0: with packs, push ups in the mud. Oh, you know, the whole of that. the whole movie all image of the that. army is that right? And you know what? It's probably one of those rare rare situations where what you see in the movies absolutely um, oh, conforms to reality. So, there was a lot of running in the rain. There was a lot of. Um, Marching up and down, there was a lot of push-ups. There was a lot of you know heavy backpacks on, but it's all character-building stuff. <laughs> that's and, what I tell you, right? That's what comes. On well, the that's right. Character building. Yeah. Those two words that come up again and again. But you know what? It was it was wonderful because it teaches you about service, and it and it teaches you that when you are at your lowest, that's when you have to build yourself back up, and you know it's all about service and you're going in to become a leader as an officer. And how on earth can you lead if you don't understand what service and soldiering is about? So um, it was, I describe it as the, I describe the training and my time, my eight years in the army as a combination of the best thing I ever did and the worst thing I <laughs> did. But I don't regret it. And I'm really proud um, to have served, but I'm also proud of, journey and all lessons and the development that, and the, the self-awareness that came with it and the people that I met as well.
1: I love that comment that how, how can you know what leadership is if you don't know what service is. I think that's that's so brilliant. What else at a, at a general level, um, aside from some of the specifics that you went through in the Army that we'll get to in a moment, mm. did mm. the Army and that period teach you about leadership?
0: It taught me that with leadership comes a preparedness to sacrifice. Mm. and really to be prepared to lead from the front and to be that person that inspires others to be their best self. And that means sometimes having the insight to know when to lead from the front and when to step back and let other people soar. And I think one of the one of the things we were talked about in our, in our military training, and, and we hear it in the outside world as well, is that a team is only as strong as its weakest link. And that was... Very apparent to me in my first tour um, after I commissioned as an officer, which was in Northern Ireland, where I was put in with an infantry regiment for three months and basically told to learn how to soldier. And I was the weak, weak link in the team. You know, I, there I was, this <clears throat> fresh faced, green professional officer who, up until that point, you know, had worked just as a lawyer. And I had to now. Um, perform and operate in an environment with men. All of them were men, mm. uh, and I had to soldier. And I had to understand what it was to be on patrol, um, to understand about security and safety and military tactics. And I didn't have a clue. These <laughs> poor guys had to be so patient with me. And and that's when you realise when you are when you are the weak link. Um, you realise how important teamwork is and performing at your best. And, and that only comes from, from I guess, being prepared to learn and being part of a group that is moving in the same direction and not fighting it. So I learned a lot about teamwork and about getting over yourself during that time. I <laughs> love that. Now, I was wondering if you could take us to another
1: moment on, on another deployment, uh, the 19th yeah. of September in 2005. So yes. I think if I'm setting the scene right, two British soldiers got captured and they were illegally detained while they were investigating a uh, police uh, infiltration, basically, by some Shiite extremists. Correct. Talks broke down and you get called in to try and break an impasse. Now, am yes. I right at that moment, that was what we call getting thrown in the deep end, wasn't it? <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. <laughs> you oh, have yeah, really had time. any
1: any real that level negotiation experience up and no. up until that point and all of a sudden you're punked in the middle of a hostage situation. Tell us what happened. No
0: training. No training as a hostage negotiator. That is unbelievable. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So that was about three and a half years into my career. I'd just been promoted to the rank of major. Um, a colleague of mine who did have the requisite training was sent in to negotiate the release of our two colleagues. But the Iraqi representative that was sent to negotiate for the Iraqis um, had no trust or faith in him and was completely unwilling to negotiate with James, my colleague, and and specifically asked for me. So you're absolutely right. I was ordered by my commander to go in and to break this impasse and to negotiate for the lives of my two colleagues. And I was absolutely petrified. I can imagine. But there was no choice to be, there there was no other choice. You know, the lives of these two men rested on my shoulder. And despite the fact that I wasn't, absolutely wasn't the one best equipped. Um, the realities as it presented itself were, were that I was the only one that could do the job. So what do you do in those situations, you know, those extreme situations of life and death or for the greater good when you're called upon to step outside of your comfort zone? you that That's the true test of character, I believe. So the decision that you make in those moments, I think define who you are as a person. And to me, it was a no-brainer. You know, the lives of these two guys were at stake, so I had to step up. So I went in on my own to the compound and um, did the best job I could. And really, you know, I guess the negotiations were going well until the point where everything changed rather dramatically.
1: So give us a little bit of a scene set. What did you walk into What in a compound? What what situation yeah. were your colleagues in and, and then what happened in that moment?
0: Sure, of course. So the two guys, the two Special Forces soldiers were being held in an infamous place called Al-Jamiat and it was infamous for two reasons. One, it was officially the headquarters of the largest Iraqi police unit in the south in Basra. hmm and unofficially, it was the headquarters of the Iranian-backed insurgency group called the Jayshal Mukti who had completely infiltrated police force. So you had a situation across the country where the country was being run by terrorist police officers, in essence. Wow. So you can imagine the chaos that ensued mm-hmm. um, and the and and the the rule of fear that that prevailed at the time. So I was in the back of a helicopter on my own. And I was being flown into this compound, which was about a 20-minute helicopter ride from where I was based at Basra Airport. And as we approached the compound and we were hovering over it looking for a safe place to land, I looked down and I saw a crowd of about 300 people that were surrounding the compound. And they were firing weapons in the air. And there was about 100 British soldiers that had been sent to try and keep calm. And they were throwing rocks and glass at them. What I didn't realise until later is that the terrorist police officers that were holding our two colleagues Mm. had leaked a story out into the community that actually that they were detaining Israeli spies because they knew that that would whip Ah. up a frenzy. Yes, of course. So we managed to land and somehow I jostled my way through the crowd and arrived at the front gates where my colleague who'd been sent in earlier, James, was waiting and he was looking pretty pale. Uh, and um, pretty shell-shocked but relieved to see me and so he took me to this makeshift office where the Iraqi judge who was the representative who would asked for me was waiting and I went in and I greeted him and I saw that there was about 12 of these terrorist police officers standing around looking quite menacing with their AK-47s and the judge the Iraqi judge said to me "All right, James go it's just you and I now you're the one I want to speak to so the first thing I did was convince him to allow James to stay uh, and the condition was that James wasn't going to speak. So James became sort of the silent observer, but at least there was someone there that I was familiar with that was mm. standing by me. So over the next couple of hours, the judge and I were negotiating and we decided and to talk about a number of actions, a number of conditions that he needed from me before he would release our two guys back into my custody. We went over to the other side of the compound because I asked to see the two men to make sure that our guys were still alive. And I was taken to the cell where they were being held. And I'll never forget the big iron door being opened. And our two guys were sitting in the corner and they were they were bashed and they had blood everywhere. But thankfully they were alive and they had hoods over their head and their hands and their feet were chained. And I asked for the chains and the hoods to be removed. And, I, and I'll never forget it. As soon as the hoods were taken off, their heads, they looked up at me and they kind of instinctively, without, without being able to control their reaction, they kind of recoiled and looked very stunned. And, and I knew that they were thinking, you know, holy crap, is this is is this what they've got to offer us? Is this the best the Army can can, can send us? Um, oh, and isn't that interesting that uh, that
1: was your reflection on that moment, that reaction?
0: Well, yeah. Um, and And, you know, they were very... They were very polite in trying to conceal it and they tried to <laughs> smile at me. But um, it was, you know, through the diest of times you can always yeah. find um, um, some comedy and some situations <laughs> where you look back and you laugh. And that was one of those moments, you know, these two elite killing machines looked up at me and thought, really? Really, they've sent in the lawyer. Excellent. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I sympathised with their sentiment at the time, but uh, shrugged my shoulders diplomatically and, and and then the judge and I continued to negotiate. So then for the next sort of hour and a half, the judge and I are continuing in the vein that we'd started and I was scribbling down on a piece of paper these conditions with my very, very basic Arabic because unfortunately our military interpreter had, about an hour earlier, had had a panic attack. Oh, wow. He had fled the scene. So I was left to negotiate without the aid of an interpreter, which made things quite challenging. So the judge and I eventually get to the stage where we agreed all the conditions and we're about to sign this scrappy bit of paper that I had written all of these conditions on. And literally, I kid you not, in that moment, uh, all hell broke loose around us. And what was happening was that the crowd outside were now storming the compound. And I could hear RPGs, rocket propelled grenades going off and I could hear gunfire from every direction. And then... I looked up and there was a single tiny little slit of a window in the cell where we were now standing where our two men were being held and I could see these ferocious flames through the window and, and I could feel the heat coming off the flames. Wow. What I didn't realise until much later was that these were the flames of my colleagues on fire. No. Because what had happened in the intervening period when we were inside was the crowd outside had grown to about two and a half thousand, so that had overwhelmed your hundred men and women. Correct, correct, and they were now storming the compound, having set fire to the soldiers that had been sent. My colleagues that had been sent to keep them calm. So that was that was my colleagues and their tanks on fire.
1: Oh, wow!
0: So in the in the sort of minutes that, that followed, that everything changed. Um, you know, the two are uh, two special forces colleagues were thrown back into the corner and their hoods and their chains were replaced and you went from being a hostage negotiator to a hostage am I right correct correct so James and I were then thrown into another a separate cell and the judge looked at what was going on and he turned to me in Arabic and he said look we we're, we're no longer in control everything has changed and then he ran off and I never saw him again and then it was clear to us that James and I were now we colli- were now hostages and we were held hostage for another eight hours, along with four of our other colleagues that were then grabbed from outside and thrown into a cell with us. Take us
1: through that moment. I mean, the fear, the uncertainty. What was it like to to deal with that? And I guess what is the what have challenging moments like yeah. that taught you about resilience in in day to day life
0: now? I guess. Yeah. So um, I guess. The one moment that I can reflect on that would probably be useful to talk about in that context is shortly after when we re- realized that we had become hostages as well. And I was, so there was James, there was four other colleagues, four four male colleagues, Special Forces soldiers mm-hmm. themselves and myself. So I was the only woman. I was the only one that spoke Arabic. And of course, I was the only one that had Muslim heritage. All of those things had served me well for the preceding sort of six, seven months in Iraq up until that point. But unfortunately, now we were um, being held by these terrorist police officers. All of those things were turned against me. So in the hours that followed in front of my male colleagues, unfortunately, I was subjected to some pretty horrific treatment. And I think the real pivotal point came when a man from outside had forced his way into our cell and he had an AK-47. He was screaming at these terrorists that were holding guard, that were standing guard around us. And he was screaming at them. I couldn't make out some of his words, but he was basically saying that one of his relatives had been shot outside in the chaos. And as he's screaming and looking around with these fiery eyes, he then fixed upon me. And in that moment, he yelled out this blood-curdling scream and, and lifted up his AK-47 and cocked it and pointed it in between my eyes. And I think for me in that moment, the world stopped. But what surprised me was my reaction in that in that literal moment when you're faced with your own mortality and you, you sort of think, okay, this is the end. I didn't scream. I didn't panic. This steely calmness came over me. I, I must confess, I, I lost my voice. I couldn't scream. I had no voice, mm. but all I had was my eyes. The only thing I could control in my body at that point in time, as I was looking down past the barrel of this AK forty-seven into these man's eyes, was my eyes. And I just stared at him. And I remembered what I'd been taught, you know, by my parents and in my culture, which is that very much the eyes are the window into one's soul and the eyes, the most spiritual, powerful part of one's body. And, and for some reason, I remembered that and <laughs> I just used my eyes to challenge his humanity. And I remember thinking, excuse my my bad language, but I remember thinking, all right, you bastard, mm. if you're going to take my life. If you're going to kill me today, you're going to have to look deep within my soul. I, I challenge you. I challenge you to take my life. Once you have looked deep within my soul, and honestly, Holly, I don't know where that came from. I don't know where that strength came from, and it saved my life because it didn't. It absolutely because he didn't shoot me, and in fact, he was wrestled to the ground by one of the guys that was holding us captive. And I think that moment of silent defiance and strength had an impact on some of the some of those that were holding us captive in the room. And I guess going forward, what that taught me is that we are unaware of the true depths of our strength and our resilience. And it's sometimes only when we are faced with the most extreme situations that that comes bare. I
1: love so, that. And I just yeah. find it remarkable that you just, it, I've had goosebumps the entire time you've spoken about that. I mean, the courage and and the stress and just the the extremity of the entirety of the situation you're in, it's, it's amazing that, your poise in that moment and and that ability to remember that that sort of saying around the eyes was, was such yeah. a such a powerful cut
0: through in that moment. Do you know what? And I think, you know, you can say, well, some of that came from the military training and sure. some of that comes from conditioning. But I think that innate strength in those extreme situations, you can't train for all of that. That that's when your character comes to being. And I think for me, what that's taught me is, yes, that's taught me that I can handle everything, anything that life throws at me because I I now have witnessed the strength that I possess. But I think what it also taught me was in those extreme situations when we're at our lowest, they are absolutely gifts because that's when so much learning takes place. And if we can just have faith that that is such an important part of the journey because that's where the wisdom and the compassion and the insight comes. Mm. Then we can handle anything, and that equips us to make the right choices when we respond to those situations. And yeah. I think that's what served me in very good stead going forward in my life and in the work that I do with others. I can imagine that. Now,
1: very fortunately, you're not just survive that moment, but you survived the situation. And you did get rescued. And I I found it interesting reading the accounts of sort of what happened after the fact that upon returning to base and sort of back into everyday life, uh, your male colleague who was captured alongside you gets awarded a military cross for outstanding bravery, uh, while your part in the whole incident was actually covered up by the British army and the government. And and you write about this and talk at length about it in your fabulous book, Equal Justice. You decide to bring a landmark discrimination case against the UK Ministry of Defence. So I'd love to know, I mean give everyone a sense of the motivation for you that sat behind uh, why you wanted
0: to do that and and really make that stand it was it was a journey and it was a journey that probably took 2 years um it took many months to understand what was going on and that was that this was institutional discrimination because you see up until that point even though I had chosen to work in a male dominated environment I had never experienced discrimination Uh, You know, I had enjoyed a working environment where I was treated and treated others as equals. I had proven myself as a professional and gender and difference just hadn't come up and wasn't on my radar. So for my first experience to be such an extreme example of institutional discrimination and to physically be ordered by the same man that had ordered me into this life and death scenario to be later ordered by him into silence, you know, to be given a gag order by him to never speak of my involvement in Wow, you in this were entirely incident. gagged. I was entirely gagged. Um, I knew that it was wrong. I absolutely knew that this was not right and it was unjust. And what was the motivation behind gagging he, you? Did you get a sense of that ever? Look, Much later on, after I brought the case, I found out the truth behind it. I was laboring under the apprehension that it was a decision made by my commander in the military. Mm -hmm. But actually, uh, it was a decision made by the highest levels of government. And what happened was the day that I just described to you, the 19th Mm -hmm. of September 2005, as it was unfolding and word went back to the U.K., Uh, Tony Blair, who was then the British Prime Minister, Tony Blair had an emergency meeting with his cabinet and a decision was made that day that if we were all to survive the event, that it must never be made public that a foreign Muslim female lawyer was sent in to save the day, to basically um, negotiate the release of these two elite killing machines because I was seen to be the embodiment of a lot of political hot potatoes at the time. Wow. So that was, that decision was made from the highest echelon. That says a lot I found out it? much later. It does. And to me what it says is the the level of poor decision making that comes from the lack of diversity at the table. Because these were a bunch of white middle class um prim- politicians who made the decision that day. And I can't help thinking that had there been a single woman in Mm -hmm. that cabinet meeting, had there been a single person with some diversity of experience and background, that a very different decision would have been made. And actually, um, there was a strong case to say that it would have been a public relations coup to celebrate the truth of what had happened. Yeah, and the, and the and diversity of the people correct. involved. Absolutely correct. And with the irony being that at that point in time in British military, um, on the British military landscape, they were desperately trying to spruik and promote the diversity of the armed forces. And the irony being that the year before I brought the landmark case, I was chosen to be one of the poster. Poster girls, I guess you could oh, say. Oh, you've got to be kidding. How's, how's the no, timing that? No, my face was used in recruitment campaign posters. You know, the, I was one of the faces of the new 21st century diverse British army. So did so, that put the you know, pressure on it,
1: even more to, to not bring the case almost? Because here you are, the, the poster child and that, that piece around, I'm really rocking the boat here if I'm speaking up about what happened and there's
0: there's absolutely. huge powers that be putting pressure on. Oh, ab- absolutely. It was something that I wrestled with in that whole journey. And, and you know, it wasn't a... I didn't go from zero to hero. I didn't set out to try and get personal justice by bringing a landmark case and suing the British government. (laughs) It it took two years of exhausting every other informal avenue of writing this wrong before when I was faced with just this one last resort. Yeah, okay. Um, And even that I agonised over because I knew, quite frankly, that it would mean the end of my military career, a career that I had, you know, paradoxically, from one that became an accidental career path to one that I – Ended up loving, um, mm. so I wrestled with that, but 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 I had to. I had to take that final step, because to not have done so would have made everything that I had before and everything about why I was doing what I was doing made a mockery, and it would have made me a hypocrite. And you know, I had spent years helping other people and convincing other people to fight for their own justice. And what sort of a fraud would I have been if I wasn't prepared to do the same for myself? Hmm. So there was no choice to be made. I had to take that stance. Practising what you preach. Absolutely. Do as I say and as I do. That's the only And way. you got the
1: win too. You know, a very
0: historic moment. I did. And I think for me what was more important was not so much the win but the change that came because of the success and the fact that a number of other cases came afterwards. And the the change that came from the institution itself, you know, so it led to a widespread investigation that informed fundamental changes in policy in terms of, excuse me, how women and minorities in the forces were treated. Uh, You know, within six months of my case being heard, I'm proud to say that the first woman was awarded a military cross. And of course, that completely changed the way we spoke of the role of women on the front line and the fact that women were capable of acts of gallant gallantry and bravery as well. So, for me, the biggest lesson which I've taken with me into my new life outside of the law, um, as, as as I guess a storyteller and a thought leader, mm-hmm. is the power of the one and the power and the change and the impact that comes if you if one is prepared to embrace our capacity to create levels of change because we all have it, but it's a choice.
1: Yeah, a very active choice, isn't it? To choose at that is. moment to stand for something, to speak up as you did. Um, to, to walk into situations that might be challenging and because because there's something bigger that it's about or there's a purpose or a reason for doing so.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, it doesn't have to be as extreme as suing a government.
1: That's <laughs> <Sure>. extreme, granted. <laughs> yep.
0: But it, it, it's, it's, it's relative and it's as simple and as pure as making the choice to live your life in harmony with your values.
1: And, and I love that. that's
0: a daily choice.
1: I love that comment you make about ripples, too, because something I was wondering, you know, you've prosecuted war crimes in The Hague, you've witnessed conflict firsthand, as you've, you've talked about. I was wondering yeah. where you sit when it comes to the spectrum of optimism and pessimism, re, sort of yeah. some of the state of the world and, uh, and the conflict we're in. Um, yeah. in. What that ripple comment tells me is you're overwhelmingly optimistic about the ability for one person, one group, one town, one community, one country to make a difference. Absolutely. So I
0: guess spending so many years where I was exposed to a daily diet of horror, one (laughs) could be forgiven, you know, by becoming a bit jaded and pessimistic. But for me, having seen so much of the worst of humanity, you also see glimpses of the best of humanity. And that is such a profound inspiration and source of hope. That for me, I absolutely believe that hope is the greatest, I, go, I guess to use an analogy, it's the greatest tool that we have in our arsenal to confront the ignorance and the violence and the oppression that we're seeing around the world. Mm. And it starts with the ripple that we can all create because ripples turn into waves, waves and it starts in our homes and it starts in our communities. That's where we start the impact and start the ripples. Oh, I love that optimism and
1: I just love that, that encouragement too about the role that an individual um, can play in that regard. I think that's, that's so important everyone never loses sight of. You know, sometimes these absolutely. problems can be so big that they almost overwhelm us. Um, and yet that ability to, to start that ripple that can turn into a
0: wave, we're all capable yes. of making that choice every day. We are. That's the beauty of humanity, you know. I, I absolutely believe that with every, with every breath in my body, uh, and and I guess for me that's that's become um, my mantra, and that's my reason for being, and that's what informs the work that I do and the choices that I make in my life. And for me, if I can, how do I put this? If I can, if I can inspire, if I can equip, if I can empower others to have that same view of life. You know what we can achieve—not just individually, but together—is is just so exciting and and so desperately needed in this world of ours. And, and to that end,
1: that is a lot of the work you're you're now doing back in Australia. So you've been back here for for years now. You're an award winning yes. businesswoman. You're one of our most noted speakers across the country. You're also a mother to triplets. I have no idea how you might juggle all I these am. various hats. Yes, um, oh, and everything else pale into insignificance in when you parent on steroids. Yeah, like when I you do. parent three nine-year-old boys, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was wondering though, what's what's your greatest bit of advice when it comes to pragmatic things you do every day, every week, to be able to yeah.
0: manage such a rich and dynamic life? How do you do it? I think it is being, being very clear about your why. Uh, and we, you know, we hear we hear that for those of us that love TED Talks and that have heard Simon Sinek talk about mm, you know, why. talk. I, I think, me too, it's one of my favourites still to this day. I, I think that my advice is that it is worth spending the time to do the work to gain personal insight, to gain clarity about what makes you you, what are your drivers, what is it that you want to do in this world and then choosing every way to live your life on message and on purpose in terms of the relationships that you foster, people you spend time with, the environment that you create for yourself in your home and in your workplace, you know, the work that you choose to do and, and to constantly ask myself, am I aligned with my purpose? And as we do as human beings, because we're all fallible human beings, when we find ourselves in situations where um, we're not feeling right and we, we're feeling a disconnect, and our bodies tell us it's, you know, when we get that sick feeling in, that, in our stomach, mm. um, or we have bite our tongue too much and close our eyes to things that's going on that really are making us uncomfortable, we've all been there. I think it's being prepared to have the courage to make those uncomfortable decisions to get us back in alignment. And sometimes that means just riding out the storm for a little bit because life is all about choosing our battles and choosing when to fight the battles. Mm. But it's being, being prepared to ask ourselves those difficult questions so that we can live a life that's true to who we are and what we're about. So that's my greatest advice. And if we're prepared to do that and commit to that, everything else comes. Everything else comes in terms of how we balance and juggle all the different hats that we wear in our lives going forward as friends and as as children and as partners and as neighbours and as leaders and as parents. The rest just comes when you have that clarity of purpose and who you are. Brilliant. Brilliant. I love that. Now, I
1: think one of the things most people probably sitting listening to this podcast and hearing about the work that you've done can sit there and go, wow, you know, it's, it, there's so much, there's such diversity in it, there, there's extraordinary heights and, and breadth and depth to everything that's gone on. For the yes. people that are sitting there, maybe with an idea on the back burner, thinking about something they'd love to go and do, uh, perhaps they've, they're motivated around the role they might be able to play, maybe it looks a little different from what they're doing now. What's your yes. advice to people starting out with a new idea, with a plan, who've got this burning desire to have an impact? How do they, how do they take a first step?
0: Uh, I think the first step is to say the words. Find someone that you connect with, that you admire, um, you know, be that a mentor, a friend, someone that you respect and articulate the idea that you've got because there is so much power in actually saying the words and speaking out loud the ideas and the intentions that you have because it ups the stakes. It ups the stakes, mm. Uh and it, it sets in train this process of this journey of discovery and experimentation. I think that keeping something to yourself just, just can't activate. So, my advice is to absolutely explore it and go with it, um, particularly if it's something that is, is a burning passion and that really resonates with your, with your essence, with your values. Find someone that you trust, that you admire, that you respect, that you can use as a sounding board and and start the process of exploring it. Um, that would be that would be the first step. And the right way to commit very, to action. Absolutely. And once you've done that and you've gone through that journey of exploring it, then when the time's right and you'll know when the time's right, commit to some action. Commit to in some small way, starting to make it happen or putting, putting some steps in place, but be very, very clear about your motivation. Why are you doing it? And I generally find that when it comes from a, a place of authenticity, that this is something that has real meaning as opposed to something that is more self-indulgent mm. um, and something that is more about, if it's about serving others and and making an impact in our world, you're generally on the right track. I think if it's about feeding one's ego, then I think you need to question the motivation. So being very clear about what's behind the idea or the passion. And when you've got that clarity, it is then, as you said, it's commit, it's committing to action. And it doesn't mean going from zero to hero. I'm not suggesting mm. anyone listening to this podcast should go away tomorrow and quit their job. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's about it's about being measured and sensible because we've all got bills to pay and and, and obligations to meet. But it, but it's about having the courage to at least pursue pursue the passion and and the idea because you know beautiful beautiful trees grow from from seeds, and I guess it's being prepared to to water and nurture the seed and seeing if something beautiful and powerful can come come from it. Mm. And, and that also comes – and I think the other thing, finally, um, would be to – for control freaks like me, being <laughs> prepared to surrender and understanding and accepting that it is really healthy to not be in control of everything and being willing to just see and – Go for opportunities as and when they present themselves, and I guess that comes with living a being prepared to live a little bit more organically and mm. giving it giving it up a bit. Um, that's when the, I think that's when sometimes the beauty comes as well. So yeah, intention. I believe very much in intention. Put it out there. Let Let it, the universe make it happen. Absolutely, the universe will provide but also being very, very discerning with who you spend your time with and and who you choose to work with in the process.
1: Robbie, I'm so grateful for your time today. We're almost at the end of our chat, but before I ask our our final question, for people that are keen to connect with you to find out more about the work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to find more information and and reach out?
0: Uh, Yeah, I'd love to, if there's anyone listening to this podcast that believes that we could work together or that I may be able to add something of value, I would invite them to get in touch with me. So my website is rabia.sadik.com. I'm very easy to find. And my email is rabia at rabiasadiq.com. Uh, so I would encourage people to send me an email. Um, whilst I work with some awesome people, I have a policy which is true to one of my values that i answer all my own emails so when you email me you'll you'll actually be hearing from me so if anyone would I like, like to get in contact just to just to continue these discussions and see whether i might be able to bring something of value or help them realize their their purpose then i'd love i'd love to hear from from those that are listening Rabia, uh, rabia at rubycity.com brilliant and
1: we'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well so if you want any more information on anything we've talked about links to Rabia's book her ted talks her website will be there and easy to find as well. One final question from my end. Uh, I guess for those listening out there, if you could give them any call to action, what would it be? What would you ask people to uh, finish this podcast, finish listening today and go
0: off and do? Commit to living your life in harmony with your values. That's it in a nutshell. From that will come the action to be the best version of yourself. From that will come joy and fulfilment, from that will come um, the change that we can all impact as individuals and as a collective. So commit to living a life that is absolutely in harmony with your values.
1: Thank you, Rabia, so much for your time today, for sharing Uh so openly your story, your advice and your insights. I know I've been inspired. I've been absolutely captivated by the tales of what it is you've gone and done. And I look forward to following everything that lies in your future as well. So thank you for making the time to talk with Coffee Pods today. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave for a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.